0: So we've been active on YouTube for about a year right now, and overall, the reactions have been really positive and people have been really welcoming, but there has been some hiccups here and there. So to celebrate that YouTube anniversary, Mark and I decided to pick the toughest comments that you guys have made and the toughest questions you guys have asked in the comment section, and answer to them in the most brutally honest way possible. So this podcast is going to be a mix of actual online marketing questions and kind of snarky remarks that you guys have made in the comments. So whether you want to know if we think that keyword golden ratio is a viable tactic or why we keep interrupting each other all the time on the podcast, stay tuned.
1: Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Authority Hacker Podcast. So this week we are actually releasing the authority site system. So if you haven't looked at it, you can go on authorityhacker.com slash system. This is a complete reshoot, complete redoing of one of our most popular courses on starting your authority sites. It is more than 50% bigger. There's a lot of new things, etc. So go check it out. We're pretty excited about that. It took us six months. And uh, how's it going, Mark, after? do reshooting that whole thing and now it's finally done. I'm so happy right now. Not only because people are gonna have their hands on it, but because I don't have to shoot videos for a little bit, you know?
1: I'm very glad we've got out the door and we've (laughs) we've shipped it. It was a long, hard slog, but ultimately I think totally worth it in the end. Very happy with how it's coming together. Even like the design we've been working on the past few days kind of leveled up quite significantly as well.
0: Yeah, it's coming together. It's like, uh, I mean, I'm excited to, we got a lot of feedback from existing authority site system members. So and that's one of these things. Actually, that's kind of the angle of the episode. So perfect transition. We use a lot. This time we really used a lot of feedback. I was actually checking the feedback spreadsheet. There's like close to like a hundred pieces of feedback from people that already checked it out and uh, dropped notes and we've already edited things and fixed things, et cetera. And uh, we'll keep doing that. But like it was really important for us to make sure that we understand the issues people are having when they're building sites and like really hit the nail on that because i feel too often when like i took courses online etc there was some really crucial questions that i was asking that were not answered or not covered etc so we did our best this time i'm sure there would be some edits that we will still do but i'm uh, pretty excited and so for this podcast we wanted to do something a bit similar we wanted to take your feedback and your questions and answer that so what we did is we went to the youtube uh, channel manager i can't remember youtube studio and we went through a lot of the late comments that we had, and we found some interesting questions that we were not necessarily answering in the podcast, like when we covered the topics, et cetera, that I think would be out of, of interest to most people who listen to the podcast. So we're going to go back to these things, probably mention the podcast it's from, etc. I've also picked up some criticism to our style of doing the podcast. So we'll be going through that. It's mostly me anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm the guy that people love to hate, you know, so let's see how that goes. But I think because it's an Atari Hacker podcast, we're going to start with value stuff and we're going to start with a proper question and we'll, we'll go to the, more of the fun stuff. And the first fun, the first question, and I'm going directed direct it to you because it's more of your stuff, is about how for new sites. And it's... I think it's on the last podcast we released. By the way, before we jump on this, thank you everyone for the support for the Christmas gift stuff. Obviously, like a lot of people <laughs> agreed with me on not buying bullshit Christmas gifts. So good job. <laughs> That's how we're saving the planet. Did you, you get know?
1: any gifts for a Christmas video? No. You didn't get a single gift.
0: No, and I'm glad. It's like it's fine. It's great. <sighs> <laughs> I tell people not to buy me anything. <laughs> are, and, you, are you and, trying to
1: convince I, me or yourself Though, yeah, it's fine. It's
0: great. No, really. I, I love it because it's like I tell people not to buy me gifts and usually I make weird faces when I don't like the gift they buy me anyway, you know? Because, like, sometimes I, like, go back to France and people buy me a gift anyway, even though I tell them I don't want it. It's, like, useless. It's, like, you know, especially because I'm, like, I'm like flying with just a hand luggage. I can't even bring half the stuff people buy me when I go back. It's like, it's just going to stay in the room and I'm just going to leave and my mom's going to have it or something or whatever. And it's like, I don't hide my disappointment. So people tend to avoid buying me gifts now. <laughs> so let's go back to the podcast. Let's go back to the questions people are asking. And the first one was for New Size for how It was from Kudi. And that was on the Your First 100 Links, our exact strategy. We'll put the card here so you guys can check it out. I guess I was told that I need to point on that direction, by the way. So (laughs) let me do this. Yeah, the question was, I have a question. How come you can use Harrow for new sites link building if they are looking for the most established experts on a topic only?
1: So I can answer this one. They're not actually just looking for extreme topic experts. They're looking for anyone with any kind of experience or story or anecdote to share around a a topic. So you could just be a, a consumer who enjoys, I don't know, paintball guns or whatever it is, or some there's a lot but personal finance related questions. They're looking for people who have actually been in situation X. And that doesn't mean you're like a financial analyst or an accountant or whatever. It means you're just a regular person that happens to have had some kind of experience. So when they say when people say the is all about finding topic experts, it's not really so much about topic experts as it is just people with some experience and in that area. And there's a lot of areas, a lot of general areas, especially around business and technology and personal finance that really anyone can contribute to. We've had a lot of success last year in 2020 talking about working from home and answering those kind of queries. We're not HR experts. We're just a company where we all work from home. We have some experience and it doesn't make us like kind of experts, but the the odd anecdote you can share here or there is really useful when content creators are, are creating content with with harrow remember they're not looking just for someone for an expert to source the facts the journalist the writer can, can source those facts themselves anyway just by googling and finding it out they're looking for your story and that's what they want to share so that's how you can yeah buy that's buy.
0: what people like to read as well right they like to read people's opinions and stuff even if it's like not factual not even that accurate whatever They're just more interested in that. That's why even platforms like Reddit are so popular when there is like more accurate news sources or things like that. It's like it's it works really well because people like reading other people's stories, you know?
1: I mean, speaking about accuracy, I would say journalists themselves, they don't even really care that (laughs) much about accuracy. They have a deadline, they have you know five articles that they have to write that day, and they're getting judged by how many likes or shares or views or whatever they they get and whether they get the stuff done in time. So that's all their motivation really is. Of course, they don't want to like blatantly lie. But if they're talking about someone's experience or, or story, then they don't really have to worry about that. Whereas if they're trying to evaluate truth and what works and what doesn't in something, then they have to think a little bit harder about it. And that's that takes more time It's more difficult. So
0: yeah, so like, don't worry, you don't have to be a big expert already. Just having a website about the topic tends to put you ahead of most people, to be honest. So it's like, Yeah, that's usually enough. Okay, actually, a comment there was on the same podcast that this one was one of these uh, crazy ones. There's literally like a whole thread going on of people debating about this, which the comment just say is from CBR and says, can you please, in caps, Stop, stop interrupting, interrupting. <laughs> each other. Well, yeah, and it's so like, and then like people are literally arguing of whether they like it or not, and just like making a big debate about that. So, what's your answer? So the answer to the question—no, I wanted is to say no. no okay, <laughs> sorry. The answer to the
1: question is no. We can't stop interrupting each other. This is actually how Gail and I interact with and have done for the past eleven or so years. It's not done out of any kind of malice, like "Oh my God, shut up!" I want to get word in, kind of thing it's that we both care a lot about the thing we're we're talking about and want to like contribute a lot of value to the discussion. We're both actually quite logical people, I think, in that we recognize when the other person has something of value to say and so we'll sort of
0: back off if the other one
1: let the other person have the floor when they when they have something to say. I'd also say that when you're watching this, sometimes our video editor will cut it together a little bit faster. So whereas we were having maybe like a, a longer drawn out pause when we we're trying to think about what to come up to next, it might just be a, a harder cut to like it's Gail to interjecting mock. with something. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that may appear to be more interruption than is that actually the fact. But we don't really want to change this too much because... As I said, this is how we actually interact. And I think this this podcast should reflect that and it shouldn't be a scripted, perfect version where i think they perhaps do have a point is sometimes in gail's interviews with other people
0: that's coming maybe after. don't know him as well we to talk they, about that
1: <laughs> okay we'll get onto that later but that's that's part two of this issue
0: <laughs> yeah we we literally highlighted like all the stuff people rise as well yeah it's like the thing is like for me the framework of this podcast and i've always said i've said it for like several years is uh you are at the bar after a conference i see a conference whatever you're talking to someone but you've had 2 to 3 beers that's In my opinion, (laughs) that's kind of like the point where people actually open up and like talk about the stuff they would never mention in the actual corridors of the conference. And like you actually pick up just information, but they're not too drunk. So that it actually gets completely off topic and useless. You know, so it's like for me, that was, for example, when I did the podcast with Noah Kagan, which is a long time ago, I literally briefed him for five minutes on that. And I was like, that's how you have to be. It was, It's not very hard with Noah, but it's like, I, I tell people it's like that. And, and if you're in a bar with your friends, come on, you interrupt each other all the time and people are like shouting over you and shit like that. And it's like, obviously it's working. People are listening and commenting and liking and everything. So people like this format as well. Uh, I can understand. It can be frustrating if you are listening to something that I, like Mark was about to say, and I just go and cut it or whatever. but uh, well, that's the price to pay.
1: <laughs> um, Leave a comment on the video saying so, and we'll maybe answer the the question or get back into it in one of these episodes. so.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's jump on to the next proper question. So the question was asked by Chris Pham, who asked, is it better to apply for affiliate programs before or after you create content? Might you spend hundreds of hours creating content only to get rejected by the very advertisers which you intend to promote? Isn't program rejection something to be concerned about when you're starting a first site?
1: Yes, so you you do have to be concerned about it, though I wouldn't worry too much. In the authority site system, in the new version of Task, we teach people to create a kind of initial V1 of your site, where you have just the basic ten or so info articles that fill out your site, look look valuable.
0: Looks on the homepage, uh, like yeah,
1: look like you've created a a decent site, and it's not just a thin affiliate site with like no value add content and whatever on there. So if you do that, and then at that point when you have say 10, it doesn't have to be that exactly, but say 10 articles on your on your site, the homepage is full, the navigation menu's working, all the breadcrumbs are there, it's, it's all structured nicely. Then you apply to affiliate programs, you have a much higher chance of getting accepted at that point than if you apply with a blank site, because you almost certainly get rejected. Some people will wait a lot longer till you have like 50 articles live or something. I don't think that's necessary. And indeed, every time when we've tried to apply for an affiliate program with just a bare bones site up there, then we've been able to get in. That doesn't mean we always got accepted first time around because affiliate program managers, they're often not that great in telling whether your site's good or or not. Often the, the forms that you have to fill in to apply for an affiliate program don't allow you to give enough information to communicate what you're doing or how good your site is. So you have to kind of go around that. And if you get rejected or if you don't hear back from them, then you need to get in touch with them, reach out to them, share what you're doing, what you've done in the past. If you have any kind of pedigree in the industry, share what your vision is, what you've done so far, what keyword research you've done, maybe what uh, types of topics you're planning, how big you're trying to make your site, what, you know, how much time you're spending on it, how much you're putting into that. And anyone who does that and is able to get in touch with the, the right person in the affiliate program is almost certainly going to get approved because that shows you're you know enthusiastic about, about promoting
0: them, so... Yeah, that's the approach. Be human, take. you know? Like, and It's fine. It's like it happened many times that we got rejected the first time and then eventually we turned around and, and got in as well. So
1: we actually got funny story. So back in, I think it was 2012, 13, we got rejected from Amazon, actually. When they looked at our site, they were, oh no, it's not, not good enough. And it was a pretty good site that we, we had on there at the time. Uh, I mean, at least for 2013 standards. And uh, I actually ended up finding a phone number for Amazon. I called them up and the guy on the phone was like, you could tell initially he was like, oh, yeah, you know, you say your site's good enough. But is it really? And he was about to go and look. And then when he brought it up, he was like, oh, actually, yeah, this is really good. I have no idea why they just did that. This didn't make the cut. And he was able to reverse it. So worst case, call them up.
0: Yeah, it's true. People don't use the phone enough. I think even for like, especially for individual affiliate programs, you know, for smaller companies, it's not so hard to reach people internally and so on. And I think you have a good chance of uh, actually reversing a decision by just calling them up because people never do that. Like, it's easy to reject a contact form, it's harder to reject someone you have on the phone. So yeah, especially if you have like a bit of a backup story. I think if I was really interested in in doing that and calling them up, I would actually buy their product just before I do that. So that you're also in like the customer list, etc. And then it's like, I would say you have a pretty good chance of doing quite well there. So yeah, it is a legitimate risk. I wouldn't build like a 200 pages if you're not in the FA program, but like, Build a base site, then maybe build one or two sites that could be used to promote their program. The good thing for this kind of stuff is that you could be creating a roundup review, for example. So, like, I don't know, you want to promote paintball guns. Let's go back to that example. You want to promote that one company, but like, you don't want to risk the, the you don't want to risk like writing a single review because if you write it and you can promote them, then you're fucked. But if you say, the best paintball guns of 2020, for example, are like the the 10 best new models or something, and then you include them in the list along with like nine others, and then you could just swap them out if you don't get in. That gives you an opportunity to create content that can get traffic. And at the same time, even if you don't, like you can show them that and then they see how they would fit in. And at the same time, if they don't let you in for whatever reason, you can just swap them out for something else a little bit later and just keep your article and not waste your content. So I would say that would be a good way to deal with that, for example. You just need to understand for each case, like it's not something you can do every time for every affiliate program. Anything else on this question? No. All right. Let's take the next one, which I like a lot, which is from Dimitri Sotetsky. I don't want to... Sovetsky. Ask. Yeah, it's hard to... Sovetsky, sorry. It's hard to say the names properly. I mean, obviously nobody can say my name, so, you know, I'm forgiven, but uh, the question was, why do site owners sell sites if it's making them good money? Makes no sense. Obviously, YouTube comments, right? <laughs> it's like, no offense makes no sense. It's just like the typical way you no, end do it.
1: I understand why someone would have that position, would perhaps suggest that. Because, you know, you have a site that's making $2,000 a month at a 40x multiple, and it's worth 80, 80k, Right. So why would you sell it for 80K when you can keep making two and a half grand a month indefinitely, right? Uh Makes no sense. Which is the reason why we didn't
0: sell Health Ambition, right?
1: From an asset perspective, you're looking at this versus, oh, you know, investing in a stock or real estate or whatever. You kind of got a point because the returns on website assets are massive, but they're inherently much riskier and much more. When I say riskier, they're much more volatile. They have a risk, two types of risk. They have one type of risk, which is risk of complete failure or massive failure. You know, you lose 90% of your traffic. It's happened to it us yeah. Or you have a risk of volatility, which, you know, you can have a period where it goes up, doubles, triples from month to month. Or, you know, you lose 60, 70% of your traffic from some algorithm update in the course of 24 hours. It can happen. So when you factor in those risks and that volatility, that means that, it may make sense at certain times to de-risk yourself from that situation and to lock in the gains that you've made thus far. If you think about it, if you if you start creating a portfolio of websites and they're all making some money, then do you just indefinitely keep reinvesting all that money and growing them and building more websites and building more and growing, 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 and all the time you've taken no money for yourself, you've made no profit because you've reinvested it all, or do at some point you pull your money out of one or some of the websites by selling them and locking in that gain and saying, okay, now I have a hundred grand or a million dollars to my name and I can go, you know, live it up or buy a house or whatever you need to do for the personal circumstances you're in. I know Empire Flippers and their sort of marketing PR spiel, they, they tout this a lot as like personal situations. And I do think there are a lot of people who, you know, have unexpected tax bills or are getting divorced or want to buy a house or have some kind of, personal situation where it makes sense for them to sell an asset and get a lot of money coming in. If you're moving to a different country, it doesn't really apply to US citizens, but with different tax brackets and rules, then it may make sense. So that's something to, to think about as well. Uh, and finally, I would say just if you want to do something bigger and better, maybe it's your first site and you've gotten to the top of your niche, you've gotten as far as it can go without crazy amount of extra effort, then it may make sense just to sell up and go into a much more competitive niche, and you know, hit that with a d- different sort of uh, approach.
0: Yeah, I think some people are also quite tired of the niche topic, etc. Or like just running a website in general, like I want to take a break. But you know, if you're like in a competitive niche, for example, there could be a point where you like have to create regular content, manage a team, do all these things, etc. Like you know that if you sell your site, your bank account is gonna be good for like a while, and you don't have to do that. And like some people get really sick of their niche or whatever, and just tired of the whole business. And they just want to take a break and they want to get out and then they'll just sell their site and and do that. But I think one thing that I'm thinking that, about. That
1: happened to us. Sorry to interrupt again. That happened to us what? with our agency. Me?
0: I can't believe that.
1: That happened to us with our agency. So we've been running it for <laughs> four years, four and a bit years, I think. And we didn't like it. We we did a podcast about this towards the end of last year. We'll, we'll link it to YouTube video. Uh, so you can go check that out if you're if you're interested in how, how we sold our agency. <laughs> yeah, I did it that way; it's the right way. So essentially, we hated what we were doing at the time. It was making kind of okay, some money, okay money. So why would we sell it, right? Well, we sold it so we could start from scratch and get into authority sites and start doing doing those. And I think that's worked out pretty well. It was a good decision in hindsight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this phenomena can be replicated across different industries.
0: You know one thing like if someone was asking me about that now I would uh, especially in this niche I would uh, I would talk about like the current bitcoin situation for example where it's like super high but it's like do you keep riding like you know it's going to move right up or down regardless uh, I can't tell where it's gonna go. I'm sorry, guys. This is not the right podcast. But I, what I what we probably can tell is probably not gonna stay flat from now on, and people are not gonna have their gains forever. And so they need to make that decision as well. Of like, they can either de-risk and like sell some if they buy it really low before they made a large profit, or they can just double down and and take that risk. And that's essentially the same decision when you do a website when you build a website and you know algo updates are quite like creating the volatility that you would see in these kind of markets as well. Obviously not on the same level, but still, and it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, it's a, it's a debate that people are having in the financial markets all the time. Like, do you actually take some money out? Do you not take some money out? Do you keep, like, do you keep your initial investment, but takes the, what you made in profit? Do you, et cetera, is the same thing. And quite often it makes sense to sell. The risks are like, the returns are high on website. But the risks are also pretty high too, like a big core agro update can fuck you up. And sometimes you can take pretty much all the resources you have to have a chance at coming back. That's the reason why, for example, I decided not to fix house ambition. I was like, it's not worth it, it's just too much work, etc. And uh, honestly, looking at the people who tried, <laughs> that, were, that went down with us, I have no regrets. We saved a lot of money not doing that, so that's why that's why you sell. and That's why we should have sold uh, a little bit before that. Okay, let's talk about another another fun comment. That is from Mike K, that commented on the interview I did with Carl Roof, and he said valuable stuff as usual. I can agree, however, about letting guests speak. He says that because, speak more. Sorry, he says that because some other people said I. Some guy commented invites an expert, talks more than half the time or something like that. <laughs> And so this guy was like the nice one. And then he gives a timestamp at 26 minutes, 45 seconds. I was interested in what Karuf was going to say, but Gail kind of bulldozed over him and then moved on to the next topic without letting him finish his thoughts don't take this as a negative comment. It's not meant to be one, but rather as a comment about something that I think could be improved for viewers, listener experience. Uh, so you can go and check that out on the thing. Actually, for that one interview, what happened is that was the second time we shot it because we had big technical issues the first time. And my camera was shutting down literally every five minutes because it was overheating. And so... We had to rush this thing so we can actually finish it so that Cal can go to the next thing he had to do. And we shot for more than two hours, even though the final interview is like an hour or something. So there is a degree of like me being used to interrupt Mark when we talk and kind of like doing the same with guests. And honestly, I think it's the format of the podcast. And I wouldn't change that completely. But for that one interview, there was actually, we were both quite annoyed, to be honest. It was quite difficult. And it was the second time we did that. So all the stories we told, et cetera, we all knew them as well because we had done that same podcast the day before. So that was a pretty tough one. But I also think that Interviews should not just be about the guests. There's millions like the Caro he's done how many podcasts? He's done all of them. And it's always the same questions and it's always the same answers, etc. I think it's more fun to challenge people and like debate with them, try to push them a bit, or try to like also compare compare notes and experiences. So like sometimes he will say something and be like, Oh, actually I saw this on my site, etc. And I think it makes it more interesting. I mean, like he did one on Lion Zeal, he did one with Surfer, he did one with Charles Floats, he did like you can go check these ones which will let him Talk more, but usually when we do these podcasts, it's more a bit. It's not like that, but I like the idea of it's like Carl Roof versus me or something like that. Even though like he's way better at some stuff than me, etc. It's more like a little bit of challenging the same way we do with Mark, and we will keep that format. And if to be honest, I've done many interviews where people were unable to answer to the challenge, and I'm not going to give names, but we did not release them. And I was like, we finished the interview, and I'm like. Sorry, not good enough and never released the interviews. And I've done dozens of these and I've made quite a few enemies from that. But I think that is what makes the podcast interesting. But if for that one sentence, maybe you were right. It's like, I haven't checked it exactly, but it's possible because we had all these technical issues. So sorry about that. But there will always be a degree of challenging the guests, comparing notes, etc. When we do our uh, episodes, just that one was a little bit special, basically.
1: It's also quite difficult to host a podcast and to interview someone and to steer the conversation in the direction that you want to go. Guests have an awful tendency of waffling and going off topic. (laughs) Uh, And when you're trying to create a succinct podcast about a specific topic, you have an idea of where you, you want it to go, but you can't plan it out. Like We're not writing our questions out before the show, there's an element of We write of the organic. questions,
0: but it kind of like deviates a bit. And the truth is, we know who listens to this podcast more than the guests do. And like very often, they'll go over topics that are not interested to them. Not talking about Karouf here. Karouf is like really spot on. But some of the guests are like a little bit more like, you know, if you invite an accountant or if you invite a lawyer, if you invite something like this, like... It's a little bit like they'll go into stuff and I know that people are going to roll their eyes and be like, talk to me about lean building, you know? And so like, that's something where we need to kind of steer it away. Otherwise it gets boring. Otherwise, like you, you say you want it and then you get it and you'll just hate it anyway.
1: I really don't like ask, writing the questions out beforehand. I like having some topics that I want to cover and then trying to direct them that way. But just if you if you try and prescribe it in advance too much, I find it... It almost becomes a bit too scripted when uh, interviews inherently not a scripted I have to. environment. One thing which I found works really well, though, which I've been doing with all my guests recently, is having a short, like 10 minute phone call a week before the, the show just to talk about what we're going to talk about. And I I found that that helps get rid of a lot of fluff, especially the stuff at the start. Like, tell me your story and uh, how, yeah. how you discovered SEO and all this kind of bullshit. So,
0: yeah, nobody, I mean, it's fun for two minutes, but like if it lasts more than that, it's like, Okay, yeah. we've, we've heard this a million times, you know? Yeah, and so it's, I mean, we're, we're going to get better at interviews. I think we're going to do more next year.
1: We have some really good ones coming up in uh, sort of end of January, start February time. Quite a few good guests that you guys are going to enjoy. So stay tuned for those. Subscribe yeah. to our YouTube channel.
0: So I'll pay attention to not interrupt them too much and I'll make sure my camera doesn't overheat. You know, I when I recorded that interview, by the but it's winter here. I don't know why it was overheating, right? But by the end, I had my windows open because <laughs> so it's colder in the room <laughs> and I was freezing because that was the only way to keep the camera running for more than five minutes. So that was the context of the interview for the second time we recorded. So that gives you an idea of the context. That's why maybe, sorry, I went a little bit over him. I'm sorry, Kyle. He knows I love him anyway, so it's fine. Anyway, let's jump onto the next proper question. We're going to pick up like tough YouTube comments on us, or mostly on me, but the next question is a real question from AJ Verma who asks, regarding updating old content, is it necessary to update the post date as well? And then there was another comment that I picked up on the same topic that just asked how often do you update content? And that was on my reviving dead content video. That was not a podcast, that was a video. You can check it out. We'll put the, the card here. So the question, updating the content, is it update? Is it important to update the post date as well? Yes, it's probably equally important, if not more important than actually updating the content. And you're going to laugh. I'm going to make a YouTube video about this next year because it makes me laugh so much. I've done it so many times where I go back to a post and I add like a single uh, full stop in the page. And I just change the date and my rankings bump up from like number seven to number three or something like this. And like I do nothing else and it works. So, like, updating the date, provided your theme pro- gives the metadata to Google, which pretty much 99% of themes do, is extremely important, works really well. And very often you don't even need to actually update the content, just the date will actually bump up your rankings. Don't ask me why it works. Magic of Google, you know? And then the next question is how often do you update your content? And we don't really put a timer on this. The way we do that is we monitor the rankings of a given page and uh, organic traffic, right? So the way it works is your content kind of is gonna usually kind of like bump up as you update it and then slowly fade off, right? It's going to slowly go down as time passes and it gets, you know, it, there's better versions available on the competitor's websites and so on. And Google will slowly demote you And usually at some point it just falls off a cliff, you know, it's just like, it goes like minus 40% traffic in two months or something like this. And that's when we decide to update our content. So we monitor our analytics, we monitor our rankings. And then based on that, when when there is a big fall off in traffic, or let's say in the last three months, it went down quite a bit, but regularly, then we trigger a rewrite or a revamp. We just basically Google the keyword again we check all the sections that we, the competitors that are ranking today have that we may not have. We check the sections that we have that these guys don't have. Kind of like refresh everything, redo all of that, check the word count, etc. Because what it does when you do that as well is it kind of like re-updates your content for the current version of Google. So let's say there was a big core update not long ago. I don't know what changed, but maybe like three months later, I will notice that maybe the average word count of the pages that rank is less... If a thousand was less than it used to be before, well then maybe I will adjust our content to be a little bit less or or more if it's small, et cetera. So there's no time, but rather an indicator of how much Google loves your page and it will fall off a cliff at some point and that's when you update. So that's basically the answer. Let's do the next one. Do you have anything else? No. All right, so the next one is uh, from Mike H. It's a fun one as well, it's not a question. Which says, it was in my interview with uh, Matt from uh, Money Labs. And he commented, I'm sorry, but you are really hard to understand interesting videos, but they are difficult to get through. So I guess Matt doesn't speak very well. That's my only, uh, he needs to work on his speech. And that's why, that's why he's struggling basically. But it's okay. It's like, it's not because he has speech problems that we shouldn't invite him. Right. So I don't know. That's not very nice. Basically, <laughs> I think he was
1: talking about your <laughs> French accent.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's like, what can I say about that? <laughs> People, there's been quite a few of these comments actually.
1: Legit, Gail and I have had conversations about should Gail's like should I take a accent reduction class or something? One of our friends took like an Australian accent class once uh, uh, to know, do great. a YouTube video. Yeah, and it was really like crazy. Good, actually, by by the end of it. So we're we're, we're considering that, but I don't know what it, what's your current thoughts on on changing up your accent, Kel?
0: You know, it's kind of like I was gonna say it's like Michael Jackson trying to be white or something. But it's like <laughs> that would kill my identity. You know, it depends. It, it really depends. I think if I see it become a an obstacle for the YouTube channel to grow, for example, because the way it works is like if the video did well with the people who are subscribed to us, then essentially YouTube finds people who watch similar videos and shows our video to them. And if they click, they might check it out and they discover us, right? That's the discovery process. And so people who know us and subscribe to us might be forgiving of that fact. But the people that are like them that YouTube selects to expand our our audience may not be like that. And that might hurt us to the point where Google gets our... when YouTube gets our video to a cold audience, their metrics may be really bad and then we just never, we struggle growing, right? So if strategically it makes sense, I'll do it. I haven't seen a proof of that yet. Maybe what we should do is we should make a video where I move my lips and you speak at some point and (laughs) and then we see how it works with the cold audience or something.
1: I'm going to put you on the spot here. I want you to do your finest British accent.
0: Like uh, like the Gareth Dane accent or the real one? <laughs> the real one. The Queen's English. I can't do that. It's like but like like Americans can do that.
1: Okay. Do do an American accent then.
0: I, I can't do accents. That's the thing. I can't do accents. Just try it. It'll be funny. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I, I can recognize it, but I don't know what intonations I should use. Like I just know like if you speak like a Canadian person, you say a boat and stuff like that, but that's about it, you know? But anyway, yeah, how to understand Sorry, I'm not a native speaker. I'm already doing much better than the average French person. I think if I spoke slower, (laughs) I'd do better. So I think speed is what I can work on rather than accent, in my opinion. If you want to comment on my accent, go ahead. You know, I put this... Okay, let me just give some insight to the strategy of this segment to the audience, right? The reason why we put that segment in there, even though it's weird for me... It's because people are going to comment like crazy about whether they are annoyed with my accent or they love my accent. And then when you guys comment, that increases engagement on YouTube videos, which in turn gets us more rich with the video. So just giving you guys a bit of insight, here's a free uh, online marketing lesson. <laughs> Talk about weird stuff, cringe stuff, etc., and people will comment and interact with your videos, and then you will get more rich on YouTube and platforms that work on engagement. Let's jump on to the next one, which was category slug no index, so nadi Kumar asks, should I make category slugs no index or index? I mean, this question is asked wrongly because when you say slug, it means the, like in WordPress terms, it means the URL, right? Like it means, not the URL, but like, you know, what is after your domain name? That's the slug. So the question I believe is, should you index or no index your category pages? I don't think that you should no index them, but I think you should make them better than WordPress makes them by default. So like a default category page on WordPress, it's going to be 10 posts and then just pages and after pages of 10 posts, basically. That's the default. That's a bit shit because there's only 10 posts on it, first of all, and Google will happily crawl hundreds of links on the page. And then let's say you link to your category from your navigation, from your top navigation. What happens is that there, let's say your homepage gets the most links, like most sites and then you have a link from there to that category, but then only 10 posts benefit from that link because there's only 10 posts on that page. Whereas if you even just revamped it to have 100 posts, 100 posts would benefit from that, and like the link just would be more equally distributed on your site from a point of view of like site architecture, et cetera. So the default WordPress categories are shit. I tend to prefer building hot pages. So if you go on, for example, authorityhacker.com slash affiliate marketing, you will see what we do with category pages. And you can, overtake them with Elementor, and that's what we do usually. But if you don't want to do that, you can just redirect your category pages to normal WordPress pages. So you could make a normal page and put all the content you want. Let's say like you put more posts, you put like you organized it in sections so it's easy to find what you want, etc., etc. Maybe you put a lead magnet in between so you collect emails and so on. It's like a nice page about, you know, third marketing or link building or paintball guns, whatever you want to do. And you can take a plugin on WordPress, like Redirection, for example, or you usually have it in SEO plugins now. So if you use like Rank Math, for example, there is a Redirection you know, section in there. And you can just take the URL of your category page and then just put the URL of your custom page that you built to be your category page, and 301 redirect that. And then what's going to happen is every time there will be a category link, it's going to be redirected. And since Google announced that they don't drop PageRank through 301 redirects, you don't lose any value by doing that 301 redirect like you may have been doing in the past. So that's my recommendation. Don't no-index them, but make at least custom pages to replace them because WordPress by default is pretty shit for category pages, but hot pages are really useful to distribute link equity. Anything to add to this? Nope. Was it hard to understand? Kind of. <laughs> Tell us if it was hard to understand. <laughs> okay, geeking out. So why don't you read the comment if I'm hard to understand? Like why why am I reading them?
1: This is because uh, you're the host and you have the commentary. Why team am I why am I the says, host? <laughs> someone says just because you always do the intros. So, someone says like in the the commentator like. When you're talking about sports, like this is what's happening. And then another person comes and gives the uh-huh. insightful commentary and out. Al- so you want to be the expert. To why it happened. So
0: yeah. you get the link. I see. Okay. So
1: this next question then is from Daniel Donchev. See? It's Dan- not that easy. Daniel Donchev. And he says, You guys are living the dream, geeking out on this kind of level. And then goes on to like give us some praise about our, our course and stuff. But and this is not really a question. And the reason I. Included this in in the list, even though it's it's a comment more than a question, is because it was kind of cool. Like we spent the whole day creating this podcast with like seven examples of affiliate sites and what they were doing, and just the going into and it. And
0: people can check it out.
1: Trying to figure out what they were what they're doing, how they got to where they are. Some of them had really low DR. Some of them had loads of links, or really, they were really really successful link building campaigns. And it was just cool. Like it was fun to spend all day. Geeking out and, and doing that stuff. I think there's a, a kind of notion in online marketing that people get in this just to make money. And that's certainly like a driving force. Like everyone is doing this, or almost everyone, wants to make some money. But it's not like you're making money at the expense of everything else. Like you can still do it while having having fun, having like some kind of moral kind of like approach to what you're doing and what you're teaching. You don't have to, like I, I get the sense that there's, there's kind of a group of marketers who just want to make money and they will, you know, cut off their own mother's head to do it. And I just, I think this guy was kind of appreciating the fact that we were like not in, in that camp. That's, that's all.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's funny because you know, Ahrefs is one of my testimonials because one, one of my tweets has a testimonial because in that tweet I said, you learn more by spending one day putting random URLs in hrefs than you do by reading most online marketing blogs. And I still stand by that. It's like every time I take the time to do that, I learn a ton. And like, you know, like this podcast was just the result of us doing this for, you know, like, yeah, five, six hours, maybe researching quite a bit. And, uh, and we came up with like a lot of really cool examples, like not even counting the ones we didn't put in there and so on. And so I think like to give something to the people who are listening to this podcast is if you have a free day, do that. Like pick a random industry that you have heard is competitive. Credit cards, you know, hosting, not paintball guns, whichever. And lettuce, that's the one. That's the really challenging niche. And you can throw like just Google a few keywords and then just Start finding some sites and throw them in HRS, look at their competitors, look at the biggest sites, et cetera, and start digging into their link profile. Find the top linked page, for example, and li- look at the links into that. And you're going to learn a lot for your own sites. Like every time I do that, I learn a ton. And it's like, it's fun to watch our podcast, but I think you would also learn a lot by doing this kind of stuff. And the thing is, like, a lot of people also in the comments, no, a, a few people. Well, like, oh, like uh, Ahrefs is really expensive. I can't afford it, etc. Which, okay, ninety nine dollars a month is, is quite expensive. You could do that with a tool like Suggest, for example, which is much cheaper. Ahrefs has a seven dollar trial that you can sign up for and then do that. So it cost you seven bucks. So it's not free, but like you you don't have to spend ninety nine bucks to even do that. And if you want to educate yourself and and get like a view of like what's going on in the market, it's a really good it's a really good way to educate yourself. And I do encourage people to do that more than reading a lot of uh, blogs, sometimes including ours. Like, you know, I don't want to place us above everyone else, etc. But yeah, it's you should do that. Check that podcast out and do something similar. Pick a niche and and go and dig. You will learn a lot, a lot. And Ahrefs did not pay me to to do that. They actually cut us as an (laughs) affiliate. Not just us, but like all affiliates actually. So, you know, I am not saying that to make money or I didn't get promoted or anything like that. It's like genuinely how... I come up with new stuff, like I rarely come up with new stuff, reading other people's blog or whatever. I do it more by observing people who are actually making money and doing stuff on their sites, basically. Anyway, let's jump onto the next one. Well, and there's actually a bad side about you, which I mean a bad side. It was a cringe flex of your hrefs mug, which Farhan uh, Sheikh Ahmed said LMAO, so losing my how Mark just lifted the empty HRS mug to just show it off. So
1: I don't actually drink coffee and I, I very rarely drink tea anymore. It's cut all caffeine last year. So I don't really have much to use this the HRS mug for. So I just wanted to kind of like show it off. And and also I get this <laughs> intense amount of pressure at the start of every podcast episode. Like we spend usually quite a bit of time preparing what we're going to talk about in the show. like Today, we've prepared all these questions. We've gone and found the good ones. We've thought about how we're going to answer some of them, at least. And then Gail always starts the the show with, so how's it going, Mark? And I'm like, I I feel like I have to perform and come up with this ingenious, witty, sharp answer to every single one. But honestly, it's just like, yeah, the same as normal. That's (laughs) kind of what, what I would say most times, but I've really been trying to put in the effort. And last year, we went down this kind of tangent of, merch and like stuff we were getting from Asana or, you know, the, the water bottle, the Ahrefs swag, the new authority hacker swag, you know.
0: Would you say your level of anxiety increased since we started doing the How's It Going Mark in general for your life?
1: Yes. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we've, we've actually been doing it for quite a while, but for the longest time it was just like, a, oh, it's going good, thanks. And it, it wasn't really a good answer. But then I, I started doing it for a few weeks and then I sat this like... You know expectations that there's going to be something funny, and there's now a chapter in our
0: every YouTube time, video, yeah.
1: which is how's it going, Mark. And every time in the the live, people are like, "How's it going, Mark?" I think we need a "How's it going, Mark?" T-shirt. To be honest, yes, um, that funny. would that would just kind of yeah. The funny everything. part
0: is uh, I was uh, on partner's computer, my fiance over, over there, and she checks the like the funny. It's like. I wanted to show her the comments on the Christmas gift stuff from last week's podcast. And I'll go and open the podcast. And I see she watched all the way up until How's It Going Mark? And then she cut it and she didn't watch the rest. And I was like, okay, that's what people watch. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people on the chat, usually on the premiere, just say they come for the How's It Going Mark. Okay, let's jump into a real question. Let's jump back into value. You guys want to also hear that. It's a good, we'll chapter, it so you'll be able to skip. But we have a question from Bassi who says, I suggest speaking on how to vet sites for guest post opportunities, considering this is one of the main tactics for link building. I've been searching for guest post sites this week, and I am noticing a lot of sites with write for us or guest post pages are just PBNs and have repurposed as blogs to see guest posts. By the way, how is my understandability of, uh, of this thing? I'm, I'm making a lot of efforts. Now I'm, I'm quite self-conscious, you know?
1: Understandability, I don't think that's a word. But that's that that Aside from that, that a very understandable. That was the joke,
0: but okay. Okay, that's yours.
1: Okay, so the question is basically, how do I tell whether a site is legit or not, whether I actually want a link from it or not, or or it's just a a PBN? And there's a few things you can check, a few metrics you can check if you want to make this into kind of an SOP or a a process. The first is the amount of traffic that that site gets. So you can use a tool like Ahrefs, which estimates not always perfectly accurate, but it'll estimate the amount of traffic that the site's getting. Uh, you'll see if it's getting, you know, a thousand visitors a month, a hundred visitors a month, or a hundred thousand visitors a month, and it may be off by by a bit, but you'll roughly get where it's at. If a site has no traffic or it's lost all its traffic uh, and it's kind of on its way to zero, then you may want to consider not getting a, a post from there. I guess, poster a link from there. Not always the case, sometimes it might be a new site or just in a very, very small niche where there's not that much of a sort of ceiling or kind of micro niche site, but traffic would be the first thing I would look at. Second, I would look at DR, which is domain rating, which measures the amount of and relative strength of links pointing to a specific site. Generally, a site which has good links, more links, is more trusted. It's one of the way Google evaluates whether to trust your site or not. It's arguably the biggest part of its ranking algorithm. So if it's good enough for Google, then it should be good enough for you. Just to be clear, Google's not using the Ahrefs DR formula. The DR formula from Ahrefs is an approximation of what Ahrefs thinks Google uses to to calculate that. Or very roughly speaking at least. So you can look at that, higher DR is better. There have been cases in 2020 where sites were manipulating their own DR in order to appear as if they're more authoritative and sell guest post links and various other other, other things. In December, Ahrefs were took some action to kind of combat that, though I'm not sure uh, they've totally wiped it out. So you, you can kind of trust it a little bit more now. Uh, whereas uh, earlier last year, it was it was maybe uh, open to more manipulation. So I'd look at traffic, I'd look at DR. Uh, then you want to see, is the site active? Have they? When was the last time they posted? Most sites will show the date, at least the l- last published date, if not the original post date, from their, their blog post. So you'll be able to see, it, have they posted anything in the last few years? Or is it just a kind of like dead site? You obviously want to be getting links from sites which are more active. Then you wanna be looking at their editorial standards. So what kind of content are they producing on their site? I really like looking at the last couple of posts and just looking at their intros. I think it's really easy to judge content based on the intro and a quick scan through the, the content. If the intro is fluffy and just doesn't make sense, then you can almost write it off straight away because it's, it's arguably the hardest part of the content to, to write. That's a that's a good tip for, for getting for assessing things quickly. You can also look at whether uh, which other sites are linking to them. So you can use the Ahrefs backlinks report and order it by DR, UR, or whatever metric you want. But you you want to be looking at are there good sites linking to them, and have they been doing that recently, or is it like an from a few years back? If all their links or all their good links are from a while back, then and you can see an Ahrefs when it was uh, first seen. I think as as they call it. Uh, if they're all like that, then you can maybe say, "Well, this might be just be a drop domain." You can also look in something like Wayback Machine or Archive.org to see whether the sites change fundamentally. So it might be, you know, again a drop domain and it's been repurposed. Uh, so you can think of things like that. You can also look at who they're, they're linking out to. I think there's this big thing about this neighborhood effect or bad neighborhood effect. So if the site is linking to a bunch of casino or porn sites, then you probably don't want to link from there as well. So look at the hrefs outbound link report to to find that if you don't have time to go through the content and, and figure it out. And just look look through recent posts as well and see. You can usually see the ones which are pointing to casino or loan sites or whatever. They'll have some title that just doesn't fit in with the rest of the the, the, the content. And you can, you can usually see them a mile off. So... Yeah, those are the kind of things I would look for to begin with. It's not always conclusive, right? You can have sites that kind of do look like shitty PBNs, but maybe it's just the person's first site and they don't know any better or they don't really know what they're doing. So you kind of have to judge each site individually. And I wish there was a simple algorithm that I could give you that says, oh, if it's this, then do this. If it's this, then do this. But it's really complicated and it's quite difficult for me to articulate it's based on kind of like quite a bit of years of experience and stuff.
0: Yeah. Also, yeah, look for top link uh, top pages by links. And then I look at like spammed pages, tier two links, etc. That's like that's one of the big ones because grey hat people do that. So it's like you quite quickly find it because they will have lots of linking root domains. And then look at the links to that page. I mean look at the page, is it a guest post? If yes, check the links, is it spam? If yes, even if the site hasn't been penalized yet, I would be a bit careful. That's Another thing I would do. Anything else on vetting guest sites? No. Cool, let's talk about that one. I like it. Keyword golden ratio. So Ewan Rahman, Rahman, I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm sorry about this. Says, this is an out of topic questions, but what are your thoughts on keyword golden ratio by Doug Cunnington? Should one implement it? Thanks. So before we even start talking, I'm not talking about Doug Cunnington here. We're talking about keyword golden ratio, the tactic, because it's like, we're not necessarily gonna agree. With what it is, but it doesn't mean that anything else that he does is not good or anything like that. But KGR, yeah, it's like all in title results. So you type all in title and then your keyword and you search, the, you check the monthly search volume. I actually checked the video not long ago because I was reading on Builder Society, which is a forum for website builders, a blog post by C. Carter, who I used to know really well at the time when we were very active on Wicked Fire. Like I, he used to, he started Serpu when we were selling guest posts on Wicked Fire. And like we were talking a lot. We had like Skype conversation with like a lot of like big SEOs at the time. And he actually loves it. He loves keyword golden ratio. And he's like, Oh, like uh, Google only sends you traffic for the pages that have the search volume based on like basically your search. volume. Well, the search volume of the keywords you target should match the total traffic your site already gets or something like that. Like he has this kind of like tier system of like you need to level up to be able to get the bigger keywords. And he says he uses KGR to find keywords and it has worked really well for him basically. Uh, Which I was a little bit suspicious. KGR, as I said, is all in title result divided by monthly search volume. And then they aim to have a ratio of less than 0.25. The golden ratio normally is a metric that is used in art, actually. It's like the distance between your eye and your nose and stuff like that to draw on painting. So that's why it's called like that. But basically what it does is it gives you really easy keywords. And usually to get that ratio, you need to find really low search volume keywords, right? Like it's hard to find a KGR positive or like green keyword, positive noise. Like it's negative. It's a negative term in 2020 and 2021. It's hard to find a keyword ratio, kilogarden ratio below 0. 0.25 when you have lots of search volume. So you tend to target keywords at like, you know, between 20 and 200 searches per month, maybe something like well, this.
1: Well, the metric actually, or the ratio, it only applies to keywords with volume of under 250. Oh yeah, month. true. So if it's over 250, it's it's not applicable for, for KGR. I, have, I mean, I have a fundamental problem with, with this whole thing. I understand why... One would create a metric or formula like this. I think having a framework provides a lot of value to beginners or people who don't have the time to, you know, do detailed keyword research th- themselves, and want a simple. What's the eighty twenty you can do for beginners or for starter site keyword research? And this is an all right kind of estimation. You could probably refine it and and make it a little bit better, but. In the absence of nothing else, then, yeah, it's going to get you some results in the sense that it's going to get you to actually do something versus not do something, and that may generate your results. Now, if you're comparing the results of using KGR versus... Proper keyword research, then I would say that you're you're probably going to be left disappointed with KGR
0: yeah. in that place. It's not because you get some results, that it's like good results. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of people like have no experience before, so they'll just be like, "Oh, look, I got some traffic, so it's working." Okay,
1: yeah, which is a really important to see some early progress to to buy into the idea that uh, and to believe that you can actually do this and to get motivated to keep going and, and things like that. Having those wins is is really important, but it, you can also be harming yourself in the long term by taking this approach because you're not focusing on actual money-making keywords or higher competition, even medium competition things, which keywords where you're actually going to move the needle for your site, get more, you know, thousands of visitors a month or or get those signups or, or add revenue dollars. I think with KGR, you're pigeonholing yourself into keywords which have very low volume and very low competition, which if you think about it, if no one's searching for it, if hardly anyone's searching for it and hardly anyone's trying to compete for it, that's probably a good signal that they're not worth competing for. Now, that's not always the case, that's not always the case, and you can find some nuggets in there for sure, but would you have found those anyway with just doing proper keyword research?
0: Yeah, it's not just that. I think you know what it capitalizes on? It capitalizes on the fact that many keyword tools massively underreport search volume, and it makes people write for these tiny, tiny keywords, you know, which they would not necessarily go after. So it's like, I think it's just that fact. But the massive flow into this is there's no, I mean, all in title is, all in title is bullshit competition analysis, you know?
1: That's not KGR that's it's not the fact that there's this this ratio or this formula. No, it's just that they go for low volume keywords. Like you could just say, actually, guys, just target anything which has low competition.
0: So, for example, in like the problem with this is that like the analyzing competition based on all in title is is complete garbage in my opinion. Uh, it's like you have no idea how competitive it is. Like there could be only ten results, but if they're all by big sites, it's like you're still you're still quite fucked. And I'm sure you will find these keywords, for example, in a financial niche. Like when you talk about stock tickers, for example. I'm sure like some stock tickers will have, like some less popular stock tickers will have low all in title results, but these ones will be from big sites, you know? Like they'll be the bigger comprehensive sites. And that doesn't mean that you can write about it and you're gonna rank for it. Like it's not gonna happen. So that's that's an example of where KGR I think, for example, would not apply. For in Intas, I'll, I'll tell people like, we tend to give two metrics for people to look at in terms of like analyzing the competition instead of all in title. We tell them to look at the domain rating of the top 10 pages, and we will tell them to find at least three sites below domain rating 35. And then we tell them to look at the traffic, the traffic metric that Ahrefs gives you to the page. So that traffic metric is combining all the keywords that page ranks for. And it's it's a bullshit number. Like when it says 200, it doesn't mean the page gets 200 visits. But it's just a number that is an index that you can use first. And we tell people like if it's more than 150 or 200, and we kind of vary this number depending on how monetizable the keyword is, you know? So if there's like, if I can promote a $200 per sale offer, like I don't mind if the page has 50 traffic because it's like, it's already good enough because I can make good money with little traffic. But like, if I'm just going to be promoting with Amazon, for example, I might be looking for 200 at least, for example. So that's usually the stuff that we're looking at. So we're looking at competition, but also like what happens when I'm there, how do I make money, you know? And, and I think it's a better approach than just all in title. The reason why your title is so appealing is because it's free and people like that and they do not need to pay for a tool whereas our method requires to use ahrefs but it's like i'd rather pay some money to save me a lot of time in not writing the wrong content and that's kind of like something that we try to explain to people it's like that information is literally your time if you're saving if it costs ninety nine dollars, but you save twenty hours, you like—is your time worth less than five dollars per hour? And if it is, maybe you should work on that rather than building a website. And so, and so—that's the kind of stuff that where we differ and where we're not huge fans of golden ratio. It doesn't mean that someone that follows it will not get results or traffic. It means that we don't think it's the best way to get results, and that there is better ways to do this. Basically, anything else on KGR?
1: No, just I think. It's popular because it's so simple, it's free, and anyone can do it. And I also see a lot of people selling like KGR keyword packs. And I know some even like bigger people in, in, in SEO, they will buy those and, and create content around that to start growing their, their site. But the reason they do that is because systematizing proper keyword research and finding people that can, that can do it at a high level is very challenging. Uh, so it can become somewhat of a bottleneck. So to get the throughput and to start lots of sites, to grow lots of sites faster, it can actually have a place. But that doesn't mean, as you said, it's the optimal way to to do things.
0: Yeah. OK, let's jump on to the next one, which is about Cloudflare APO, which I mentioned in one of our news roundup. So JYH said, uh, nice talk as usual, gents. wrote a new Cloudflare service would the $5 per month spend on this mean I can couple it with super cheap hosting options, thinking of Namecheap entry level and get decent, reliable solution? Yes, that's exactly what it means because most of your files are sold from Cloudflare when you use Cloudflare IPO. Therefore, your hosting is less relevant. You know, it's just going to... Basically, the way it works with uh, WordPress is the PHP just renders the page. So like the server your hosting is going to do that calculation and putting that page together, grabbing the main content, grabbing the sidebar, grabbing the header, etc. And it's going to render HTML. And then Cloudflare is going to grab that HTML and cache it on their server and serve that from 19, for 99% of people from their fast server. So yes, you can do that. It's not going to be the absolute best because if you have something a bit dynamic or you change your site or something like this, if you have really, really cheap hosting, it could be a problem, but for basic blog type thing, yes, I think it's really powerful to couple cheap hosting together with Cloudflare APO, you can get really good speeds for your sites at the best price, basically. So that's basically, that's a quick one. But I think, uh, I think I'll make a whole video on Cloudflare APO uh, this year, because, um, it's actually really cool for page speed. And the, the thing I like the most about Cloudflare IPO is there's literally no settings. You just tick it and it just does it. And like, it just figures it out for you. And it works really well. So I will I'll make a full video on that. It's gonna be a short video if it's just ticking a button, but I'm sure people will like it, showing the before and after or something like this. Okay, anything else on Cloud5? I guess not, Cloud5PO? No, that's not your thing, I guess. (laughs) That's why I didn't go through this. I'm sorry, I didn't let you interrupt me on this. Now the question is, the next question and the last question is from Alex, who was asking, when you are selecting a niche, how many potential keywords ideally do you want to see? And I think, That's going to be coming back to an argument I made during the KGR argument, which is that it's not really about the number of keywords, you know, like I'm willing to write a page that has less traffic if I can monetize it with a more profitable offer and vice versa. I want more traffic if the offer makes me less money. It's the same with the niches, right? So I still like niches with a lot of keywords because what it does is it spreads the competition. And it has happened that we went into very, very competitive niches, but they had Thousands of keywords, and we're able to then you're able to find gaps. Whereas when there's only like 10 main keywords for your niche, they tend to be extremely competitive and everyone's going after them, etc. So when the niche is broader, there's more gaps that you can find. And that's why, for example, yeah, I mentioned the financial market, there is tens of thousands of profitable keywords in the financial niche. So it's a hard niche, but I believe. It's very doable for most people who listen to this to get into that niche because you would be able to, like I'm thinking again, like I'm talking about stock tickers, like imagine if you take different tickers, like let's say you have an accumulating fund and you have dividend distributing fund and people will be V.S.ing these two, right? They'd be like uh, this ticker versus this ticker and that has like 50 search volume or something, but these people are looking to buy, right? And you can sell them brokerage accounts that's pay you 200 bucks, et cetera. So that gives you an idea I like to find these kind of niches that are highly technical, highly complex with a lot of keywords, but it's not about the keywords. It's about how much money you can make from them. We don't care about keywords. We don't care about traffic. It doesn't pay the bills. What pays the bills is selling stuff and getting a commission or selling your own stuff. And so for that, it's a formula of multiplying keywords by volume, by difficulty, by payout. Basically, it's kind of like that giant formula. And then you, you don't actually add it up in your head. You just. You know, evaluate it. And so if a niche pays low, then I would want enough to be able to reach enough volumes. I would want enough low competition keywords, maybe like a hundred, I would want at least a hundred pages on that site. But some niches with 20 or 30 good keywords, you can already make a site and uh, it might not be the biggest site. It might not be a site you keep writing about, but you can do that. So don't focus on how many keywords, focus on how you can monetize them. Maybe you have an opinion on this no i I really don't (laughs) sorry for uh, raising up your anxiety all right well we're gonna wrap it up here let us know if you like us picking up the questions from the youtube comments and uh, answering them. if you have more questions you can drop them in the comments and while you're there you can also thumb up the video subscribe and click on notification bell so that you don't miss any on our of our future videos i am going to do more real youtube videos coming up as well so it's not going to be just podcasts i'm already starting to work on some, etc. So I'm quite excited for that. Don't forget as well, the authority side system is up. When do we we close it? End of the week, right?
1: Yeah, Friday, I think. Thursday, Thursday at midnight.
0: So it's not just the regular authority side system that you may have seen many times. We have completely redone it from scratch. We spent six months on it. It's massive. It's 50% bigger than it used to be. It has all the stuff that you need to know for 2021. We talk about the new Amazon. We talk about YMYL. We talk about core updates. We talk about all the stuff that, you know, may have been newer in terms of building authority sites. So if you want the complete blueprint, go on authorityhacker.com slash system. And also we'll be back next week with another podcast episode. So we'll see you next week.